When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Picture this. Okay, so I need you to envision this, right? You're in a grocery store in the produce section. It's always packed with all the fruits and veggies you could ever need. But Urban Crawl, the growing hyperdensity of cities, not just across America, but around the world, paired with pollution and contaminated water and soil, should absolutely make you wonder, if not ask, where did this come from and what is in it? So did Jonathan Webb. After growing up in the Appalachian region of Kentucky and leaving it after college to go work at the Defense Department in Washington, D.C. on this huge solar project, he began to wonder the same thing. With his background building the solar project for defense, he put his mind to creating the perfect tomato, free of everything awful, and he moved not to Silicon Valley, but straight back to Kentucky to start App Harvest, a controlled environment farm that uses 90, 90, 90% less water than traditional farming. On February 1st, in a reverse merger or SPAC, right, this is the hot word now, App Harvest went public on the NASDAQ. But building App Harvest was not an easy road to hoe, and I think you'll find still isn't. But Jonathan Webb is in it to win it, and he is my guest today on Everyone Talks to Liz. Jonathan, I love this story, and you were with me on the day you went public. How have things been since that day? Well, Liz, uh, it, it's it's absolutely humbling, and and you know the, the the pressure that comes along with with being the CEO of a publicly traded company is is real, um, but it, it's worth every waking hour. Our region. You know, is is just on fire. Uh, what what it meant here to to have a company listed on the Nasdaq is it, it's still to this moment. We're, we're doing a doing an event later this evening, uh, raising money for uh, people impacted by floods that have happened here in Central Appalachia over the past couple of weeks. But it's just by having this vehicle, which is a, a publicly traded company, you know, the amount of impact we can do. Uh, that's not only just with our core work, but around our entire work. It's it, it's hard, you know, the, the daily uh, the, the daily uh, slog of, of what we're doing, but uh, incredibly humbling, and again, just an honor to be able to to lead this company here here in a region where uh, so many of us love and and want to want to build this thing into something great over the next decade or two. I'm sorry. Had you ever been a CEO or a CFO or or anyone in what we call the C-suite before this? No, Liz. My my background is I know how to build stuff, and so I, I was I grew up in Kentucky. Uh, I was a part of. I left Kentucky and was self trained at at Wind and Solar, and, and worked with developers early on, and kind of the the boom of the the renewable energy boom in in, in the U.S. Uh, and and I just it had it, that that's what my my skill set is really large scale. Uh, projects and in that in previous app harvest it was solar 
And so, no, I, I mentioned to you earlier, Liz, this is the first stock I've ever owned. You know, I've never been the CEO of a company. Uh, and here we are just raised, we've raised over a half a billion dollars this year. And, you know, we're head down focused on execution. We're, you know, we're not watching the stock price. We're not, you know, we're not playing into the, into the overall hype. You know, our, our job is to build a better food system in the U.S. and it's going to take us decades. And, you know, we are, I've, I've got 30 years of work ahead of me and, and we're trying to just stay head down. And, and there's a benefit, you know, being in Kentucky and having the company headquartered here, uh, we're not really in, the, in those cycles of hype that you might see or feel if you're in a New York or Boston or San Francisco. So I think our team is, is able to be somewhat focused and box out the noise and, and really just do the blocking and tackling every day to, you know, to build and grow a, a really good food business. No distractions in Kentucky except the work at hand is what I'm hearing you say. Well, and nature and all the wonderful things it has to go for it, you know, but, but that we, we think it's a benefit. You, you, you're on a construction site, you might need to walk away and there's the beautiful mountains in the back room. So, you know, it's a hard job, but we, uh, we couldn't have a better, better landscape to be doing it in. And, and yeah, it's, uh, I, I don't think we could have built this business anywhere in the U.S. at the speed in which we're building it here. Jonathan, you have to talk to me about how you go from leaving Kentucky, after going to college there, going to the Defense Department, living in that fast world of government and contracts and engineering and building a solar project, back to Appalachia to build the perfect tomato, grow the perfect tomato. I mean, you got to tell me how this all came about. So growing up in Kentucky, I'm good friends with a lot of co-operators here. Um, it's just something Eastern Kentucky, you know, we, we've tried to say coal alone has not powered the U.S., but, you know, people of this region have, and, and it's just, it's, it's here. You can feel it. Kentucky and West Virginia, second, third largest coal producing states. So energy is, it's a topic of conversation. And I got out of undergrad at the University of Kentucky around 2008 during the financial collapse. And I wanted to work in energy, uh, but at the time, we weren't building any more coal plants. You know, the, there was a struggle in, in the coal industry. And I, I just wanted to be involved in the energy world. And I kept hearing about wind and solar. and There was nothing around here. So I, I just packed my bags and went to New York without a job at the time and ended up uh, being able to advise some developers, went out and looked at sites, you know, helped review you know, potential developments. And really just got worked my way into the renewable energy world. I had no training or background in it. But the, the industry was taking off so rapidly. I mean, you got to Wait, think, so you got to stop there. You self-educated, reading. Tell me how you do that. Yeah, and that's, you know, that's what I've tried to, coming back here, tried to empower young people. I, you know, it's, we all have access to the endless information that, you know, whether you're a kid in Harlan, Kentucky, or uh, Pikeville, Kentucky, or London, or Hong Kong, or Singapore, or New York, you know, you, you can get free classes online, you can get information. If, if you want to learn a topic, there's nothing stopping you from learning that topic, but, but you know, a computer, broadband internet, and your own, your own, uh, your own mind. So yeah, I, I just endlessly dove into the wind and solar, and, and wind, solar is pretty easy to build. You put I mean, not to oversimplify, but you put stakes in the ground, you put solar panels on top. So it's not like building a nuclear reactor. Um, so 
I just kind of hustled my way in. I remember sneaking, you know, the elevators in New York, you have to have an appointment to get into a floor. I would sneak onto the elevator, tell somebody I had a meeting with them. I never had the meeting. Uh, so, and so I just got into a, a, a vastly growing industry that once you had some skills, people were looking for skills because the industry was taking off so fast. I mean, 15 years ago, wind and solar was a boutique industry, virtually very little U.S. investment. And over the last 10 to 15 years, we've seen billions of dollars flood into every state, massive projects, uh, and just happened to jump onto the right industry at the right time. And that took me, I ended up down in D.C. Uh, under, it, it, was a, it was a White House initiative prior, uh, under the Obama administration, and it was to put uh, renewable energy on Army installations and Navy and Air Force. That, that program was still open under the Trump administration, and it was framed as resiliency. Um, so we were building wind and solar on Army installations domestically, which if you think of an Army installation, that's a whole nother topic, but it goes, we'll get to the food security topic and we'll talk about food. But for me, my background that, that I kind of built my way into was energy security, domestic energy supply. And my vantage point and the way I looked at food was I was in DC, I, I was in the, I had a clearance, I was in the Pentagon. All I heard was energy security, energy security, energy security. We're working to build energy systems on uh, Army, Air Force, Navy land. Um, you know, in the event that the grid goes down, that there's power supplies, you have solar, you have battery, and you have some backup generators. And then this, it was just being in DC, the, the fact that no one's really from there and everyone just kind of gathers. You just start to realize our food system, we have tripled our produce from Mexico to the US over the yeah. last 15 years. We pretty much shut down farms all across the US to push food out of the country down to Mexico and import it back in. And then we're trucking at 2,000 miles. And I was just, here I am, and all I hear all day, every day is energy security, energy, energy, energy. And how many people are really talking about food? And, and so, you know, we can layer on how we got to the app harvest idea, but, but it always starts with a problem. And as we, I was with people in D.C. that, you know, just none of us were experts in food, but we were unraveling it going, what the heck is this? This is, this is terrifying. I mean, we've built a system where we have the largest economy in the world, yet our grocers rely heavily on fruit and vegetable imports from mm -hmm. a country uh, south of our border. And, and that's, you know, that was the problem. That was the aha. And then we can get to, you know, how this technology and why Kentucky, but, but like everything, it really starts with the problem. And then you try to solve that problem in a business. So you've never been a CEO. You had never been a farmer. And you had never run any kind of group of people to build something like a gigantic greenhouse. So, okay, you say, I'm going into this. Doesn't that need capital and that need money? Where'd you get the money to start all of it? Well, in, in the beginning, I, I didn't have a whole lot of cash in my bank account, but I used that, which was, I don't even know at the time, probably $30,000, $40,000. I maxed out my credit cards, like any net. Anybody with a full got full conviction in, in a company, and I did all those all those things. Uh, I moved from D.C. to Harold, Kentucky, which is at, outside of the big city of Pikeville, Kentucky, uh, and I was we were running the company out, out of the house. Um, and then I found out J.D. Vance uh, got named to 
runs Steve Case's fund, it rises the rest in DC. And so Steve was the founder of AOL. He started this fund, Rise of the Rest. And the thesis of the fund is that 80% of venture capital goes to San Francisco, New York City, and Boston. Right. So he says, let's avoid the, the coasts and go to the so-called flyover states, you know, the Midwest, the South. Yeah, bingo. And I'm, I'm scouring it. I'm a year into this. I had not raised a dime. I'd about spent everything I had. Um, and I hear, I, I hear the news about JD. So I go back to DC, stalk JD. I, I, I got introduced to him through a mutual. It, now the individual's on my board. Um, <laughs> I really just went to JD and he had been in the job for a week. And I was like, JD, you have no idea who I am, but you've got to invest in this company. Like, I'm not leaving the room. You will have to call security. I'm not leaving. I don't care what the dollar amount is. I need some money. It's got to come from Steve. I'll get the credibility. I'll be able to go raise more money. So that went on for about a week to 10 days. uh, And I got them to write a $150,000 check. They wanted two people in Kentucky to invest alongside of them. So in February of 2018, uh, Steve Case and JD invested $150,000 Tim Couch and Greg Couch in Kentucky invested fifty thousand, and Kieran Baratu invested fifty thousand. And that two hundred fifty thousand dollars at the time went towards engineering plans for me to be able to design our first facility. So really, just kind of some soft capital, so I could hire some engineers to build this facility. Uh, but I really just laid out the thesis for them. I mean, the thesis was the Southwest of the U.S. and California are drying up; they're running out of water. If we do grow stuff in the U.S., fruit and vegetables, it's in California and Southwest. The rest of it's being imported from Mexico. Uh, we've seen produce imports triple coming from Mexico to the U.S. We're trucking at 2,000 miles to get to a plate. Uh, and mm-hmm. you, chemical-laden pesticides just galore over this stuff. And here we are, and we got Kentucky. So why did the coal industry thrive in eastern Kentucky? We can get to three quarters of the U.S. in a one-day drive. So we can take that infrastructure, roads, power lines, all the stuff that was already here for the coal mines, build infrastructure to grow food. We have an incredible workforce. But to me, building a company in an area of the country where if you can find a job that's harder than going down in a coal mine, and if you screw up, your friend might die. So there is no harder job. So being in an area of the country that has that tenacity, has that grit, has the faith to just charge forward towards any challenge, there's no better place. So we have geographic location. We can get to 70% of the U.S. in a one-day drive. So why did the coal thrive here? Because you could get it to major markets. We have an incredible workforce. And lastly, we have the lifeblood of planet Earth. We have water. And the thing I didn't even realize when we were starting the company, I knew we had a lot of rain. I didn't realize how much rain we have. Mm-hmm. We're doing a telethon tonight for flood victims or people impacted by flooding the last couple of weeks. Central Appalachia is getting wetter. Five years, Kentucky, five of the last 20 to 25 years on state record have been our wettest. While California is drying up, it's on fire, running out of water, we're getting wetter. What is 95% of a fruit and vegetable? Water. Yeah. We're packaging up that rainwater growing a fruit and vegetable. So we're building the infrastructure. 
in an area where people can operate it, we can get the major markets and we have the water to grow the fruit and vegetables. It is indoors, right? Explain why this uses 90% less water. Yeah, so the term, and I think we're all going to get to know it, controlled environment agriculture. It's a bit of a handful, but you know, 20, 25 years ago, it was renewable energy. Uh, 10 years ago, it was a little car company called Tesla with electric vehicles. And then now it's controlled environment agriculture. We, we just do not have a choice. We have to be able to control environments. You talk to any farmer in the world or in the U.S., and they'll tell you, I can't grow outdoors. I don't know. Am I going to have enough sun? Am I going to have too much rain? Am I going to be drought stricken? The predictability of the climate, whether regardless of where you sit politically, is irrelevant. You go talk to a farmer, they will tell you about climate disruption. And they will tell you, in the U.S. last year, I think the statistic is 40% of the revenue to U.S. farmers was from the government. That's not a free market. There's nothing free about the agriculture system. It, our farmers, you talk, and to me, that's where, again, I, I came from this area. And so when I kept hearing all this in D.C., and I was seeing, and I'm hearing people talk about energy being an issue in the U.S., food and agriculture terrified. And, and we can go through 15 statistics. We don't have a lot of time here. The shot clock's ticking. We have 20 to 30 years to figure out our food system. This is not a 300-year-out problem. It is We've got rising middle class, a growing population around the world, and we got to figure out how to grow a lot more food with a lot less resources in a, in a climate that's getting more and more difficult to grow, grow food. Uh, 2.8 million square feet, 60 acres under glass, uh, our retention pond where we collect the water, uh, nearly 70 Olympic-sized swimming pools, walk in, go to the east wing of the facility, uh, and ride, uh, ride a scooter all the way to the back where our team is. And that's where we had our, our first uh, tomatoes that we were going to harvest and try. We were actually, so Martha Stewart, that's another story, joined our board. So we're harvesting the tomatoes to, to overnight to Martha that day. So we can figure out, are they good? Are we ready to go to stores? Now that's quite a judge. Martha Stewart, yeah. I'd be nervous. I was terrified. She is, <laughs> she is on it. Like somebody I've, I thought, yeah, that's, that's another one. But that great judge and great taste. Um, so it, yeah, it was, it was very surreal. It was something we've been building for several years with an idea on a napkin and, you know, a bunch of really smart people, way smarter than me that were willing to put their capital and reputation behind this thing. And the fact that we actually grew a tomato, I mean, there was a one point with the company, I gave us a 50, 50 shot on ever actually building anything because we just went so big. It was all about scale. We had to have the scale to compete with Mexico. If you do it small, it's economies of scale. I can't, we can't compete on price. But if we go massive, our steel price is lower, our glass price is lower, operating costs are lower, and the unit economics on a pound of vegetable, you can compete with illegal practices in Mexico. And that, again, we can get to that. But pick the tomatoes. I mean, everybody's got tears in their eyes. Then we overnighted them. Uh, I remember that boxing moment when we boxed them up. I was a part of that, freaking out. Is it going to look right for Martha? Uh, we're taking this tomato out, putting that tomato in. And, <laughs> and she got it the next day, uh, posted it on her Instagram, called me. And when Jonathan, these are freaking fabulous. Uh, and we knew it was time to roll. So we started shipping our tomatoes uh, a couple of weeks ago. We've already shipped 
over a million pounds, and and now we're we're, we're rolling rolling full steam ahead. A million pounds. Okay, what other crops? Talk to me about what's next and what we can expect. Yeah, so controlled environment agriculture in our lifetime uh, will grow. Our thesis and the investors backing us believe that most fruit and vegetables at scale globally will be in a controlled environment. So that's that's all vine crops, tomato, cucumbers, peppers, it's leafy greens, it's herbs, it's berries. We don't have a choice. I mean, you, you look at California, the way they're growing leafy greens right now. Uh, if your viewer or if your listeners haven't heard or watched uh, Kiss the Ground, it's a Woody Harrelson documentary on Netflix. It's, it's so jarring. I mean, the UN has said we have 60 years left of fertile topsoil on planet Earth before our soils are no longer fertile to be able to grow. Uh, it, it's shocking, jarring. So we don't have a choice. We have to grow indoors, uh, use a lot less water, a lot less land. We use none of the harsh chemicals uh, that they use in an open field environment down in Mexico. Um, so right now we're growing tomatoes. We've announced that we're building a facility to grow leafy greens, uh, and then we'll be getting into berries, and, and we'll be getting into other vine crop vegetables as well. But you know, our, our big picture goal is uh, Apple, Central Appalachia will be the largest produce hub uh, in the U.S. in the decades to come, and we'll be taking that production from Mexico and bringing it this direction. This is Everyone Talks to Liz, and we'll be right back. Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie, formerly known as Angie's List your go-to home services, marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you, it's the nation's largest home services marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project, big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house, whether it's general home renovations, or fun projects like putting in a pool. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus, They've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know you're getting quality service. So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. Jonathan, I want you to put yourself in my shoes. I'm walking into, let's just say Whole Foods or the A&P. And I am looking at a tomato. It's not organic. Looks bright red. Looks great. Would you buy it? You know, Liz, unfortunately, I think this is the first interview I've talked about this. But no, I wouldn't. And um, my mother has leukemia. She grew up eating tons of fruits and vegetables. We did as a family. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we didn't, my parents just worked hard to put food on the table. Uh, both have high school degrees. I grew up going to, I graduated from public schools and we never had the privilege to think about where our food came from. And her doctors say, have no idea how she has leukemia. 
But, you know, there's a lot of discussion on the chemical pesticides on our food and the correlations between various different cancers. It's freaking unacceptable, Liz. We're, we're in the largest economy in the world. And my mother has to question if the yep. food she put in her plate poisoned her. Give me a break. Oh, you know, I, I worry. There's, there's the $2 billion lawsuit against some of these companies. I mean, you look at, look at the Roundup lawsuit. It's, this isn't theory. I mean, this is the exact same thing of saying cigarettes in the 1950s were healthy. I mean, it's just garbage. And then the problem is, it's south of the border. I'll send you videos of some of our grower team. You can't even get down. Good luck. Get some media team to go do investigative journalists in Mexico. Cannot happen. You will not get on a farm. They're dumping illegal chemicals on our food that then goes onto our plates. Well, here's my question. The cost comparison between what you are making and what is in my local grocery store. It's always more expensive when you look at the organic section. Yeah, it's you know, ridiculous. I tell mean, me about your pricing. Can yeah, you keep so it? Our, we, we built a model where we backed into the price. We said, here's the price per pound at a grocery. Here's conventional. And 90% of Americans cannot afford to spend more at the grocery. So it's our job to build a system to grow the fruit and vegetable and not raise the price. And we've done that. It's about the same price. But we all have to have an honest discussion and we got to figure this out together. This is, it, it's not going to, it's going to be a very long, complex process to dig us out of a messy, wicked food system. But we have to have the honest discussion and we have to talk about mm. the chemicals going on our food that then goes on our plate, that then goes in our body and what that does over time. And you either pay for it up front, and that's the horrible thing. You talk about whole foods and yeah, people have talked about the whole paycheck. Again, people here, we just, people can't go spend a hundred bucks on a bag of fruits and vegetables. It's not, but how we should not be having to make that choice in the largest economy in the world. We've got to do something better to create a food system for farmers, for consumers, for mothers and fathers that want to put food on the table. How do we create a better food system? And, and what we're trying to make the case for is technology and infrastructure. But it's going to take policy initiative in D.C. It's going to take an honest conversation. Uh, and, and we got to be on a fair and level playing field. So we, we have a long way to go. I, the good thing for us, I don't think this is a left side of the issue. It's not a right side of the issue. It's food. It's something we all you know get, get at a table. We all eat. And we've been able to be at the highest rungs of the levels on both left and right and have the discussion. And I am hopeful that unlike some other, many other topics in DC, you know, there could be a bipartisan moment on, on food and rebuilding the American food system. You know, we, we have to be the global leader in food. And, and unfortunately, right now, we're not. It bothers me that these things are politicized. It bothers me that solar is somehow uh, framed as some lefty kind of thing. Uh, I just, it sickens me. Don't we want to be the leaders in the newest technology? And don't we want to be the ones that look and say, we can make this better and we can fix this? I got a question here. You mentioned an idea on a napkin. Were, were you being serious? Was it really on a napkin that you sketched out an idea? Oh, yeah. I mean, well, <clears throat> I use, I, so I'm a very simple person and maybe it was my background, but I, I, you know, I'm surrounded by people way smarter than me now. Um, 
But my thing was, if I can't figure it out to explain it by a couple basic bullets, then, you know, then the thesis itself is flawed. So the thesis here is just, it's really simple. Use technology, use infrastructure, build in a region that has water, access to markets, uh, and rip the produce out of Mexico and bring it back to the U.S. I mean, there's all these different ways on how we get there, but it really starts with, can you put it on a one pager? And then that one pager turned into a thousand page book of uh, engineering plans that 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 went to to help us go raise the money to do this thing. Jonathan, do you care what Wall Street thinks as you're forging ahead with building this? No, I mean the the thing. I absolutely. I talk to my mom every day, and I've well exceeded her expectations in life. So I'm good <laughs> there. So that's the only real thing that matters. To me. The thing that gets me though is, you know, just I I the the pressure for me is is what we need to do and execute head down on the ground. But yeah, I mean, even these conversations with you, Liz, they don't, people lit, I mean, I got people leaving our, our, our facility going, this is the first time I've ever had a job where there's been a positive article. written. So yeah, it matters. And I think for me, it's part of my job to, to, to stay out front and, and try to fight this thing and, and keep the positive story going. But, you know, being this vocal and, and out front, it, it comes with responsibility and, and there's a, it's a bit taxing at times, but I just think it's part of the obligation of, of having this job. Well, have you hired a lot of ex-coal workers? We had, uh, a, I mean, there's stories of a woman driving in from West Virginia that had been in the coal industry. I think she ended up moving over in this direction. And yeah, we have an individual that, that's, you know, working on our construction team that used to run dozers on, on coal projects. So the, the stories are all tethered through and, and that's, that's, I mean, to me, again, you know, our, our team, the people working on this are, are the thing that just, when I want to take a nap or I want to rest, it's if I need motivation, I just go right in the facility and I can find it every day. Here's some more motivation. Princess Liz would very much like American-grown avocados, not imported from down south. You've got this controlled environment. What else can you grow there? Can you grow pineapples? Can you grow things that really only do well in very humid or island areas? Sugarcane, uh, mangoes. Are the possibilities endless with your controlled environment farms? So the short answer is yes, because we're simply controlling an environment to grow a plant. So we're giving it, you know, all it needs. So again, your viewer or listener can think about this. Uh, we're just controlling the environment year round. So on a December day, it feels like a spring day and, and we're just mm. getting, but the, so then it becomes economics though. There's the physical aspect of can you do it? And then the economics doesn't make sense. Uh, all fruits and vegetables, again, that now has gotten to a tipping point where, you know, y- you can do it economically. Uh, the trees like an avocado, it's not there yet. You can do it. You can physically do it. You can make it happen. But you know the economics aren't there yet. Got it. And and the thing that will stay outdoors is the row crops. They're just so one heavily subsidized and cheap to grow outdoors. But you know wheat, corn, soy. So when you think of American farming in Iowa, you know that wheat, corn, and soy will not be touched in this. So that will stay outdoors, which has a whole other issues of you know they're trying to fight up against. Uh, but it's all the fruit and vegetables that, that you know, we, we, we believe will become in at scale will start to come indoors over the coming decades. Now that we've also we're very friendly with organic farmers, four season farmers, and, and we've tried to make it very clear. Our competition is somebody using 
harsh chemicals that kill the soil, kill, you know, poison mm. the waterways and ultimately poison us as we eat the food. That's our competition. Any farmer in the U.S. that gets it right, any farmer in our region that gets it right, we've tried to reach out to them and just say, hey, we're in this together. Like, they're, it's, it's an all the above. So there is great outdoor farming that takes place. The problem is 80 to 90% of the farming is just, it's really, really, really rough. Yeah. And we got to transition to a better way to farm. Well, I cannot wait to see how App Harvest grows and how you as a company and a company leader grow. To me, it really strikes a chord and I'm thrilled for you. And I'm so, I'm actually grateful to you. I'm grateful that somebody like you just dove right in when the water was very dark. You couldn't tell whether it was shallow or deep, yet you're taking the shot and you're taking the chance. Jonathan Webb, thank you so much. And may I just say, your mom must be one amazing woman if she raised you. And I wish her the best as well as with you. Please send my best. Thank you, Liz. I really appreciate it. And we'll, we'll keep getting you tomatoes in the years to come and, and look forward to you visiting sometime in the future. Yeah. And I'll, and I'll hold out for the mangoes and the pomegranates, my two favorites. So yeah. <laughs> keep working on that. Yeah. I believe in you. <laughs> no, thank you so much. It's important. And trust me, our, our, our region, not me, our region is listening to every interview like this. So Thank oh, you good. for shedding light on what Please we're doing. spread the word. It's a message that has to be heard. Jonathan Webb of App Harvest. And uh, I hope you guys heard this message. The passion for somebody who was the first in his family to graduate from college, take a shot, worm his way in, bang down doors, stick his foot into the door jam so they couldn't close it. This is what it takes to make a dream come true. You can only dream as hard as you are willing to work for it. And, uh, you know, if you work for it and you get your money, come watch Fox Business, 3 p.m. Eastern. It's the Claim and Countdown. We help you uh, grow it, invest it, save it, all of that and much more. We'll see you next time. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine.